Um, good morning, everyone. Yep, and uh, <clears throat> just to echo what uh, Sean has been saying and praying, that uh, this is really what the church is about. Um, it's not having a, a great snazzy band, uh, having, um, I don't know, uh, good to average speakers or any other program that we put together, but it's uh, a people who are being joined together uh, by the power of the Spirit of God and the people who have been loved by God as you we were singing this morning, a community, a family. And so even as we welcome people into membership and, 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 and send families away, this is, this is not a formality. Uh, this is us expressing our true identity as a loving community. And so if you're here for the first time, welcome, and I'm glad you got to witness that. And for those joining us online, welcome once again. Um, but yeah, let me also just pray and we'll get into today's message. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, dear Lord, we thank you for the wonderful truths that we were singing this morning about your love that uh, will uh, never give up and that never runs out uh, on us, that cannot be exhausted because you are eternal and you are love. Uh, we thank you for the wonderful truth of you dying for us on the cross and uh, through that creating a new community from every nation, every tribe, every people group. And uh, Lord, we want to just uh, bless our, our friends as, as, as they go onto the next phase of their journey. And uh, we pray for the difficulties of transition, the, the difficulties of, of, of boarding school and um, everything that comes with that. But we also know, Lord, that your grace is sufficient and that your love will uh, cover over and that perfect love drives away all fear. And so, Lord, we want to send them away in your grace, in your power. We pray for loving communities where uh, they will be established and where they will continue to grow and to be fruitful in all that you have in store for them. We pray, Lord, as we open up your word, that you would speak into our hearts again and that it would be a, a work of your Holy Spirit. Shape us and mold us into the people that you call us to be. Amen. Great. Um, we're in the third part of our four-part series uh, that's uh, titled Haki, um, which I'm in no position to be translating that, but Kamal said last week that's translated justice or, or truth. And um, even as we look at this series and uh, I speak this morning, I just want to give a definition of what I'm going to be talking about in terms of justice so that uh, we are having the same thing in our minds. And I'll just give this quote uh, from the Lexham Bible Dictionary, which says, in the Old Testament, the concept of justice refers to divinely ordained actions 
that promote the well-being and equality of all humanity, whether justice is served by punishing oppressors or by vindicating the oppressed. There is always the concept of returning humanity to shalom, an equilibrium in which wrongs have been made right and the impoverished have been restored to prosperity. So as we look at this series and as I talk about it this morning uh, and, and, and use this word justice or injustice, we are looking at this concept of humanity being restored to shalom. And now shalom is a word that we commonly translate as, as peace, but it's, it's not just the absence of conflict. Actually, it's, it's the presence of God. That's, that's the fullness of shalom, God himself. And in lesser degrees, it's wholeness, fruitfulness, prosperity for humanity. And so when we talk about justice, we're talking about restoring shalom. Sean kicked us off uh, two weeks ago, and he was looking at our hearts, you and I as an individual. How can you and how can I have a heart for justice? This heart that longs to see people restored to God's shalom, restored to his fruitfulness, his prosperity. And he mentioned three aspects for us to understand, to develop this heart. He, 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 he first of all pointed us to his heart, that is the heart of Jesus. And he read from a passage when Jesus was early on in his ministry, and, and he read from Isaiah 61 and, and said, this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to bind up broken hearts, set captives free. And this was the heart of Jesus. If you, if you want to understand what happens in the Gospels, if you want to understand this message, then you have to understand that heart. Secondly, Sean called us to understand our own poverty. You see, we, we're not the heroes of this story. We, we're not the uh, benefactors. Actually, we are the beneficiaries. We are the poor that Jesus spoke about, whom he came to bring good news. Then thirdly, Sean said we need to understand the nature of his kingdom. You see, the, the, the goal of the gospel is not to kind of put us in this great cosmic waiting room, waiting for all things to be accomplished, then we are translated into heaven. No. The goal of the gospel is to establish a kingdom from heaven to earth, waiting for the full consummation of this kingdom. And so as those who follow Jesus, who have put our trust in him, we are citizens of this kingdom whose foundation is righteousness and justice, whose prince is called the Prince of Shalom. And so we carry this mandate to see Shalom restored on earth. Then last week we heard from Kamal, who was speaking of uh, justice in my city. And he highlighted a number of areas, things that we are to be concerned about. He spoke about the rising population, this, this explosion that 65% of Africa are under the age of 25. And this brings about a myriad of problems, among which is unemployment. He also showed us from texts such as John 15 and, and Philemon that Jesus called his disciples not simply to be in the world and to be part of the bandwagon of, of complaining and despondency, but actually to bear fruit in our time, to 
have a concern and a care for the social issues of our day. And this is why Jesus called his disciples the salt of the earth and a city set on a hill. And so my job this morning is to move on to the practical, to see not only how do we do justice, but actually how do we live lifestyles that do justice. See, as James, James encouraged us, we must not only be hearers of the word, but actually doers. And so my hope today is that I'll help you make practical sense of what you've heard in the past two weeks and move from being a hearer to a doer. And um, as you heard, I think um, I'm one of the elders in the church and the other two elders are Sean and Simba who are on stage. And we've got another elder, his name is Mbonisi. Uh, for those of you who are new, you might not know him. He's on sabbatical at the moment. And normally he carries the, the load for preaching. And one of the things that um, Bonisi uh, frequently says, which I found helpful, is that the goal of parenting and pastoring is to help prepare family and church for the day we'll all stand before Jesus and give an account. Now, if it is true that Jesus' heart is for justice, that his heart is for seeing people restored to wholeness, fruitfulness, shalom, then I, it's critical for us as individuals, but also as a church, that we're fully prepared to give an account for how we as his followers have endeavored to live lives of justice so that on that day we can hear him give us the divine well done. And so I hope that this morning if you're on that path, if that's, that's the way you've positioned yourself to live your life, that you'll be affirmed and encouraged. And if, and if this is not something that you've really considered as you've considered your ambitions, your life, I, I hope you'll be challenged. And I hope that you'll get a vision of the kind of God-glorifying, justice-pursuing lifestyle that God is calling you to live. And as we do that, I, I want to read from a famous story told by Jesus in all the Bible. I love the stories that Jesus told. And I can pick out three out of them that I think are, these are my favorite. And, and this is one of those three. So I'm approaching this with the fear that I will be underwhelming to the text. But we're going to read the so-called story of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And I, I want to draw out six practical applications. So if you have your Bible, please turn there. If not, the text should be up on the screen. Let's jump into the text. Just then, a lawyer stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? You're a lawyer, aren't you? What do you read there? He answered, 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have given the right answer. Do this and you will live. Now, as we get into the story, we get into it in the context of tension between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. And so this lawyer stands up and tests him with a difficult question. And I want to say that from here on in, when any lawyer in the church asks me a question, I will, I'll view it with great suspicion. And so their, their goal was that they, they could trap Jesus in some way, showing or trying to show that he doesn't have the right esteem for the law of Moses. And now my, my goal this morning is not to get into the overarching story, but suffice it to say that Jesus turns the question back to the lawyer and says, hey, what have you understood from the word of God? And the lawyer gives the summary that we see elsewhere given by Jesus himself in Matthew 22. And he, he quotes Deuteronomy 6 verse 5 saying, hey, it's, it's loving God. In Leviticus 19, loving your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus had said that on these two commandments hang the whole law and the prophets. In other words, on these two commandments depends understanding the whole Old Testament. And so even as we're looking at this concept of, of justice, of, of shalom, it hangs on these concepts of loving God and loving your neighbor. Writing an article analyzing biblical justice, there's a Catholic nun called Catherine Feely, and this is what she says. She says, Christian love of neighbor and justice cannot be separated. For love implies an absolute demand for justice, namely a recognition of the dignity and rights of one's neighbor. Justice attains its inner fullness only in love. And so what Sister Catherine is saying here is that we, we, we can't separate haki from upendo. In fact, biblical justice only attains to its full expression through biblical love. And elsewhere, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13.3. He says, if he was to sell everything he had and become so sacrificial to the extent of giving his life, yet he did not have love, he will gain nothing. So the first practical point for us this morning is this. A lifestyle of justice is a lifestyle of love for God and neighbor. And so let's carry on with our story. We'll just read one verse. So the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And I think when the lawyer asked this question, he knew how intricate and difficult this question was. And in fact, we see the universal or arguably universal human tendency to want to choose whom we love, to narrow 
our circle of concern. One commentator looking at this story who's a Middle Eastern scholar, he said that what the lawyer was expecting from Jesus was that he would give him a list of who he was to consider as his neighbor. In fact, in his own mind, his, his neighbors would have, con would have consisted of his family or Israelites and maybe other foreigners living in Israel, but definitely not idol-worshipping Gentiles or the hated Samaritans. And may I suggest that each of us, we either consciously or subconsciously have a, a list of the people or the demographics that we think we are obligated to love and help flourish. Top of that list is your family, your relatives, friends, our, our tribe, our, our clan. And anyone else outside of that is not really my concern. In fact, whole cultures can, can develop sayings and philosophies around this. Blood is thicker than water. In our own vernacular, we've got a saying, basically, which says that uh, I saw some other Zimbabweans coming in, so I'll, I'll, I'll say it in Shona first. Chawawana ijganehama, mutorwa anehanganwa. And what it's saying is that what you get, eat with your relative. Strangers have a short memory. I've also been fascinated by the developing kind of political scene with the picking of running mates. And, you know, as a foreigner hearing Mount Kenya, Kirinyaga, and the campaign promise there is that I'll make sure that Mount Kenya gets a sizable piece of the national economic cake. You know, it's, it's as though people are saying, hey, we don't care that the VP is there to serve the nation. We just want a big, fat slice of the national cake. And all this just to illustrate the human tendency to narrow our circle of concern. But this is not the way of Jesus. You see, he, he widened his circle of concern by taking human form. Not only did he take human form, he experienced human suffering. Not only did he experience human suffering, he experienced human suffering on our behalf. And friends, if we're to live a lifestyle of justice, we need to widen our circle of concern. This is the second point. And so Jesus tells a story to illustrate this point. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. Now Jesus' audience would have been like, yeah, the hero of the story has arrived. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, at this point, there would have been a sharp intake of breath. 
Why do we have a Samaritan in the story? While traveling, came near him. And when he saw him, he was moved with pity. He went to him. And I just want to draw the third practical lesson from this portion. We need to move toward, not away, from people in need. As Jesus begins his story, the audience would immediately sympathize with this man who is an unfortunate victim of life. I mean, the, the way to Jericho was, was famous. That it could happen. It was, it was very narrow. You, you could be caught in that impasse. You could get robbed. He has fallen into the hands of robbers. He has been brutally stripped of his possessions. Those robbers likely were Samaritans. He's beaten, left for dead. And you see, for the audience and for us, knowing that backstory emotionally prepares us to want to see this man helped. It is the same with the injustices around us. And of course, when I, when I say injustice, I'm, I'm talking about people who for one reason or the other cannot experience the, the wholeness and human flourishing that God intended for all humanity. See, when we consider the, the, the Old Testament or Israelite concept of, of injustice or justice, it, it was related to the socioeconomic structure of the day. You see, from an agrarian, patriarchal society. So if you didn't have land or male representation in the family, so you're considering orphans and widows, foreigners, you are at a marked disadvantage. And so this is what was considered injustice, economically, legally, socially, relationally. And we need to translate this in, into our day. You see, there, there are whole classes of people who are brutalized by their circumstances. They're, they're victims of life in the same way as this man was a victim on the Jericho Road. They simply can't help themselves without outside assistance. Could be experiencing just injustice economically. They, they, they don't have access to, to the means of production. Or legally, they, they've got no recourse. They, 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 they can't afford. They, they've got no voice in society. Or it's socially. A whole class of, of people is, is considered second class. Or relationally, where, where God intended us to be relationally connected, saying the first, it's not good. It's not good for man to be alone. It's, it's not good for, for kids to grow up with our family. It's, it's, it's not good for, for people to be lonely. This is, this is injustice. And I remember growing up, we had a house help and the law in our country was that, you know, there was the labor ministry and, and labor office in our town. And basically, they had labor officers who would go around to people's houses and would interview the domestic workers to make sure that they were getting paid minimum wage, they were getting the right time off and that kind of thing. And I remember as kids, 
My dad said, hey, you know, labor officers are roaming around these days. <laughs> if you see a stranger at the gate, don't, don't go and open the gate. Don't, don't respond. And so you, I grew up with that mentality that, you know, the, the labor officers, these guys are the enemy. Man, why, why are they trying to get people paid a decent living wage? You know, why, why, why are they trying to get them time off? And we can get a society that, that has this mentality that it's, it's, it's right to put down a certain class of people simply because they have no means to be able to get recourse legally. See, minimum wage is, is not there to, to be the goal. It's, it's, it's there to say, hey, this is the absolute minimum. When, when paying people, we should be thinking, what, what, what does it take for them to live? What, what does it take for them to, to live out the, the aspirations of their humanity? And I understand it's convenient to, to have live and help. But we must make sure that it's, it's not an opportunity to overwork people. And so we, we must translate this concept of, of injustice into our day-to-day. -day. Where is it that people in our city, people in our community, are disabled from flourishing economically, socially, relationally, legally. Now, we have to admit that need by its nature is intimidating. And our tendency, my tendency, your tendency, is to shy away rather than move toward other people's need especially if it's really deep, troubling, and not easily solved. We tend to avoid people with alcohol or substance abuse problems or mental illness issues, or if someone always seems to be short of cash. Even if it's your own flesh and blood, you begin to think twice when you see, even if it's just... Now they're calling you from a new number and it's like true caller is showing me that this is uncle so-and-so. And I know that conversation doesn't end without him asking for money. We, we want to shy away from need. And in our story, we, we see the priest and the Levites. And now we, for the purpose of my sermon, I'm, I'm not going to go into the significance of their vocation to a Jewish audience, but suffice it to say that if anyone knew their Bibles in that culture, the priest and the Levite would have known. Yet it seems that their religious observances, it's a possibility that the, the priest was coming from serving in, in Jerusalem. He was on duty at the temple, and he's like, hey, I'm just on my way home. Many priests used to live in Jericho. But it seems that his religious observances, his Bible knowledge, didn't translate into loving action. 
instead of moving towards this man in obvious need, they move away. Friends, our church attendance, baptism, membership, Bible study, prayers are completely useless to our community and the world around us if they don't translate into loving, just action. It is great for you to read your Bible and pray, but your faith is only fulfilled through loving action. This is what James says. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace. This is shalom. Be warmed and filled without giving them the things they need for the body. What good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so James is saying that real faith moves towards those who I need. Now, perhaps the, the priest and the Levite have have strong reasons for avoiding the situation. You know, per perhaps they reason to themselves that, look, I, I, I don't know this man. This, this, first it's him, it, it could be me next. You actually need to accelerate. Maybe he, he got into trouble for, for his own misconduct. It's, it's his own fault. See, maybe it's a trap. I remember growing up, we had... Many such stories that, hey, if you see someone waiting on the side of the road, actually drive faster. Maybe they feel they just don't have the time to stop and help. And I, I have to admit, this, this one gets me. When, when I'm having to drive to a meeting, I think one of my constant prayers is that, may I not be the first to arrive at an accident? Please. Let me not be the first to arrive. I, I'm just too busy. Maybe they feel their hands are already full with their own problems without minding the problems of strangers. Remember someone saying to us, you know what the definition of, of middle class is? That you're three paychecks away from poverty. Like I'm, I'm just trying to... I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm on a treadmill and I'm running. Poverty is just at the end. If I, if I stop running, I fall in. And so now you're saying I, I need to worry about someone else? Forget it. So I think it's, it's safe to say that we all have our coping mechanisms to be able to, to move past the need that we see around us. And the only question is whether your coping mechanism leads to a softening of your heart or a hardening. In the words of 19th century commentator J.C. Ryle, he says, there's still thousands in trouble. This was in the 19th century, so, I mean... At the turn of the century, there were a hundred million people in Africa. And now we're talking about a, a billion. There's still thousands in trouble 
who can find no friend or helper. And there are still hundreds of priests and Levites who see them but pass on the other side. And friends, hasn't this been the story of the church in some parts of history? Where rather than being at the forefront of engaging with injustice, either we've had a hands-off approach, and even worse, have created theology to justify injustice. Yet in contrast, we see the Samaritan who saw the man, and it says he was moved with pity. Another word to translate that is compassion. In other words, his heart was moved towards him. And when you read the the Gospels, this this word compassion is, is most associated with Jesus. And so Jesus uses it deliberately. This was how we see Jesus responding to human need and suffering. It was a a deep inward disturbance that moved him to action. The same word is used when when he feeds the 5,000 that he was moved with compassion. When, When he healed a blind man, he was moved with compassion. When he touched and cleansed a leper, he was moved with compassion. It's, it's also a word and a phrase that was at the heart of, of Jesus' description of the character and nature of God or the Father. And he illustrated this in his parables. For example, in, in the parable of the unforgiving servant where there's this man who's got a debt that is so big he can't pay it. It says that the master was moved with compassion and he forgave him his debt. And finally, we see it most wonderfully in the story of the prodigal son. When, when that errant son is returning, who's, who's wasted it, says that while he was still far away, his father saw him and he was moved with compassion. This phrase is at the heart of our gospel. And so illustrating God's incredible heart for our suffering, for for injustice, for this lack of shalom, for for this lack of economic and, and social and relational equilibrium. The Samaritan was filled with compassion and moved towards the man in need. And it says that he he bandaged his wounds, having poured oil and wine in them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said, take care of him. And when I come back, I will repay you whatever more you spend. And just to recap what I've said so far, I've said that a lifestyle of justice is a, is a lifestyle built on loving God and loving your neighbor. It's, it's a lifestyle that widens your circle of concern It's a lifestyle of of moving toward rather than away from people in need. And fourthly, it's a lifestyle that responds appropriately and completely to the need. We see this Samaritan, I don't think he's got a certificate in first aid, but he nurses and, and bandages the wound. It means that he came to the man, he examined him, 
He saw exactly what his wounds are. It's not a quick or, or careless fix. It's not thinking, what, what, can I, what can I just do to make this problem go away quickly so that it's not in my face? But he, he, he invested himself in, in the man's life and in his well-being. He, he then puts him on his own animal and, and takes him to an inn. There were no hospitals at the time. And one commentator, it's difficult to give illustrations that are appropriate because any illustration I'll give would be offensive. One commentator compares this to 19th century America. Having a Native American coming in with a European American on his horse, and this guy has got arrows sticking out of him and is riding into this western town saying, I've, I've brought this guy. This, this is the equivalent of, of what it's like for a Samaritan to ride into a Jewish town with an injured Jewish man. His response is complete. His response is appropriate. You see, what, what an orphan needs is, is a family. Someone who's unemployed needs a job or some other income generating opportunities. Someone who's hungry needs food. Someone who's naked needs clothing. And so our response needs to be appropriate to the need. This is what the verse that I referred to from James was talking about. We have to respond appropriately and not hide behind some sort of pseudo-spirituality or, or ultra-pragmatism. Uh, we can't wish people's problems away. There's some problems that need long-term commitment. And this is what God has done in the journey and the story of humanity. He's committed to us for the long haul. Not only is the response appropriate and complete, but we see that it is a response that is sacrificial. Friends, there's no hiding away from the reality and the call to follow Jesus is a call to sacrifice. This Samaritan, he doesn't seem like he was rich. He could just give two days wages. It was sizable, but it was not breaking the bank. He poured his own provisions of oil and wine. He only had one animal. It means that he had to walk. He went in at pain of death and his own life. And every time I've thought about this story... What gets me is his willingness to go into debt. Because for me, there's one thing that I, you, can, you can tell I'm, I'm, not a, I'm, not a, I'm not a Kenyan. I'm, I'm not willing to go into debt. And for somebody to be willing to go into debt for somebody else, it's like, I don't know how long he's going to be sick. I don't know how much food he's going to eat. I don't know. 
And can you imagine someone racking up a debt when you're not around? Like, when I return and it's like, hey, buddy, it's 5,000 denarii. I'm like, how am I going to order that? I, my mind can't compute that. The incredible sacrifice to incur a debt on behalf of another. Friends, a, a lifestyle of justice is a lifestyle of sacrifice. We'll get to the end of the story. Then Jesus asked, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The lawyer replied, the one who showed him mercy. Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Now, if we entered the message here, this would be a message of unbearable weight and responsibility for any of us. Because none of us can love God and love people perfectly. None of us really want to lay our lives down on behalf of others. None of us really want to forego our own comforts and luxuries to meet the needs and overcome the injustices of others. And so when Jesus says, go and do likewise, we have to see this in the context of the question being, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's almost as if Jesus answered, well, you know what the law said? Jump over this wall, this, this four-meter wall, and you'll, you'll inherit it. But friends, what we have been singing this morning, what we've seen even in this story is that the ultimate hero of the story, the, the, the ultimate outsider, the, the, the ultimate sacrificial one, was Jesus, who came into our story. When we were victims to the world's injustice and our own sinfulness, and he sacrificed not just his belongings, but his very person. And it's when we receive of this love, we receive of this gift, knowing our own poverty, that we can actually be raised to be able to go and fulfill what Jesus requires us to do. And so, sixthly and finally, a lifestyle of justice is a lifestyle of response to God's love. I just want to end here and just to remind us what I've said is that, well, a lifestyle of justice is one of loving God and neighbor. Widening your circle of concern, moving toward rather than away from need. It's a lifestyle that responds appropriately and completely to the need of others. It's, it's, it's a lifestyle of sacrifice. But the first and most important thing is that it's a lifestyle that responds to God's love. And as we end, I just want to encourage you. I really believe that even amongst us, this, what I've been saying this morning 
is there are many for you. It's, it's not something new. In fact, you've, you've given your life to this. And actually, one of the things that you've been carrying and wondering is if you're making any difference at all. You, you look at your efforts, you, you look at the need around you, and you think, man, it's like just a drop in the ocean. Is there any point? Is there any point to what I'm doing? I remember one story that was told by John Maxwell in one of his leadership talks. And he says there was this uh, beach where with the tide coming in, starfish would be stranded on the beach. And there was this guy who was going around, picking up one after the other, throwing them back. And there were so many that someone who was watching him said, hey man, they are just so many starfish. Does what you're doing really matter? He picked up one, threw it back into the water, and said it mattered to that one. Friends, if, if you're living your life to see this shalom restored, to see wholeness, fruitfulness, prosperity, I want you to know that it, it matters. It matters to those people whom you're touching. And ultimately, it matters to God. But as we close... In the book of Matthew, when, when Jesus had finished his sayings and was going to the cross, the, the last story he told, we commonly call it the story of the sheep of, and the goats. Where he says, comes and separates sheep and goats. And he says, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was naked. Friends, what we're talking about this morning is, is not peripheral. It's, it's not nice to have. It's not a, a good add-on to the ministry of the church. Oh, yeah, we, we know Haki. We know that thing that we're doing as a church. Yeah, that's nice to have. No. Jesus says it's, it's, it's core to who I am. It's core to my kingdom. It's core to my disciples. And so I just want to encourage us to take this to heart, to continue to engage in the devotional material to continue to think through and pray through what God could be calling you to, to live your lifestyle of justice. Let's pray. Hmm. Hello, Jesus, we acknowledge that ultimately You are the God of mercies and the Father of all compassion. It's you, Lord. And that we can't generate compassion. In fact, we, we get compassion fatigue. We, we can't handle the need and the injustice that we see in our world. And so we, we hide away, we, we move away from it. But Lord, we, we know that you're not calling us to carry the burden. 
in and of ourselves because you said your burden is light and your yoke is easy. That we learn from you because you're meek and humble of heart. And so, Lord, we want to learn from you. Even as we look as a church at how do we live out our value of compassion and how do we live lifestyles of justice in a world so full of injustice. We want to learn from you. We want to lean in on you. We want to rely on you. We want to gain strength from you. But Lord, we, we don't want to just hide away. We don't want to pass on the other side. We want to be those who go and do likewise. And so would you pour out your Holy Spirit, strengthen us, encourage us, affirm us, challenge us, even as we endeavor to live such lives. Amen.